Welcome back, America. It's Hugh here at the last radio hour of a very wild week in the life of the United States is the Hilltale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show, an hour that we put aside for 30,000 feet looks at what is going on from the perspective of classical historians, from the perspective of constitutionalists and originalists and all of those who work and, and live in and around Hillsdale College. Hillsdale.edu for everything Hillsdale. Uh, you ought to sign up for the newsletter Imprimus. You ought to take their online courses. Usually Dr. Larry Arn joins me, but occasionally we get lucky and Dr. Paul Ray joins us. He is, of course, a professor at Hillsdale. He has been writing so many books. His most recent one on Sparta, the Spartan regime, its character origins, and grand strategy. He's previously written about soft despotism and democracy's death, about Machiavelli, about the ancients and the moderns and political theorists. He's a great guy to have on on a week where we might think that Montesquieu's spirit of the laws is gone from the country. Paul Ray, welcome back. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Ray. It's good to be here. Um, I am curious how someone like you, who takes a long view from Sparta to the convention that gave us our Constitution of the day thinks about a week as crazy as this one? Well, it's, you know, in some ways it's built into the constitutional system. Uh, I'm teaching a course in the fall on the Constitutional Convention, which I haven't done in 30 years. Oh, wow. It's... uh, 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 and you know, it's it's the it'll be the this summer is the anniversary of the Constitutional Convention, uh, 1787 to uh, 2017. Uh, and you know, if you if you read the Constitution and if you go through the Constitutional Convention, there's something missing. Uh, there's something they didn't think of. Uh, they're very impressive. Don't 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 get me wrong, but there's nothing in there about political parties. Uh, uh, and, correct. And they factions, right? Just the Federalist Papers talked about sure, factions. Sure, that they expected. Um, but the notion that there would be standing political parties, um, uh, they didn't think of it, and they certainly didn't want it. Uh, but it turned out to be necessary uh, to make the system work. Uh, and the reason is, with the separation of powers... Uh, between uh, legislative power, executive power, uh, and judicial power, but also uh, with bicameralism uh, affecting the legislative power, coordinating action uh, becomes extremely difficult. Now, Uh, now, Dr. Ray, one of the frustrations that people have this morning when the effort to repeal Obamacare fails in the middle of the night because three Republicans... Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and John McCain of Arizona uh, joined the Democrats to kill it so that the Senate cannot pass its version and thus go to a conference with the House to try and reconcile the bills, is that the the Republicans never seem to deliver. I and, and there are some ob- objections to the various Republican shenanigans that went on, but like the Constitutional Convention, it's a mess until the end. You really can't judge the product of a deliberative process until you get the end. What Collins, Murkowski, and McCain did last night is the equivalent of leaving Philadelphia in August of, uh, of 1787 and saying, ah, too much trouble. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, what, what allows the system to work is a measure of coordination between the various branches uh, that's affected by the political parties. Uh, the Democrats have a pretty effective political party. Um, um, they, they, they work together rather well. 
the Republicans don't. Um, and, and part of the story here is our parties have a way of drifting between two poles, parties of patronage and parties of principle. Uh, all of the political parties in the history of the United States have been parties of patronage. That is to say, there's a kind of conspiracy to get together to uh, divvy up uh, the uh, goodies between our people. But there are moments when uh, the parties um, become something a little different, parties of principle. And you could see this, by the way, in the birth of the Republican Party, which, which just comes from nowhere. And suddenly uh, you've got a, a, a party of principle coming out of the woods, um, uniting former Whigs and former Democrats uh, behind a set of principles because there's a large number of people who are deeply concerned uh, with, with certain questions. So um, I think it's useful. I think it, it, it's useful before we go to where these parties come from to review how messy is this convention, because people who think Obamacare repeal is messy, they really don't know the constitutional convention very well, because that was my gosh, that was on the, the pinnacle of death many times. And in fact, I think if we look at it, you could say it failed in Annapolis in 1880 and 1786, right? It didn't. Yes. It, it failed for a year and a half. Well, and, and, you know, even before that, the idea of the Constitutional Convention is proposed by Alexander Hamilton in 1780 and 1781. Oh, really? Uh, and and in, in a series of essays called The Continentalist, which are just wonderful. Uh, and the entire idea of what the federal government was going to be is laid out in those essays. Um, you know, we think of uh, James Madison as the father of the Constitution. Well, the father of the Constitutional Convention is Alexander Hamilton, and he's got the vision of what a national government will do. So he's as important as James Madison, and I think the third figure that, that's of very great importance is John Dickinson. Uh, uh, go back with because I don't know this well, uh, I, I, but I love it. I find it very encouraging on morning when you when people are weary uh, to say. It took Hamilton seven years to get to the convention, and it took two more years into operation. Uh, yes. He, he, he did not flag in that effort. No, no. He continues to push. Um, and he's, uh, look, he's, he's in the grips. He's, he's not the only one. There's a whole group of people. Governor Morris is another one, and Robert Morris is a third. And George Washington is actually a fourth. Uh, these people see everything from the perspective of the nation. Uh, most of them have served uh, in the Continental Line, so they've had the experience of fighting the war uh, without any money to fight it um, and, and with an ineffective federal government at the center. So from their perspective, there's been a crisis since 1776, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, and so in 1780 and 1781, these people are backing Hamilton, who is laying out the argument that you simply have to do this or we will fail. Uh, you have to pull things together. Uh, and at the heart of the matter is the question of finance. Uh, it's not an accident Alexander Hamilton ends up as Secretary of the Treasury. It's not an accident that uh, Robert Morris is very much concerned under the Continental Congress with, with questions of finance. Um, uh, the, the, uh, to, to actually defend the country uh, in the Revolutionary War, but after the Revolutionary War, takes money. And there's no financing mechanism 
for the Continental Congress. Uh, they call on the states to provide money, and the states act like Republican senators. <laughs> they, 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 they do so when they feel like it, uh, and when they don't, they don't. So there's a kind of disaster developing, and these essays are written before the end of the Revolutionary War. Uh, and something, had the Revolutionary War gone on further, something might have been done in the early 1780s. But when we win the war, the pressure's off. Yep. Um, and then the pressure begins to build up again because uh, the country can't pay its debts. It can't enforce the Peace of Paris on the states. Um, there's the problem of the Western territories, which could lead to a civil war between the former colonies which have conflicting uh, claims in the Western territories. There's a whole series of issues that could um, uh, cause the Union to collapse. And as the Continental Congress meets, uh, fairly often they don't have a quorum. So they can't even do, even within the limits of the Articles of Confederation, they can't operate because they don't have a quorum a good bit of the time. Yep. And, and, And so, but they don't, they don't leave town. Uh, I mean, Hamilton does go back and forth. I know the summer of 1787 pretty well. There have been a couple of great books about it. By the way, what do you think is the best book on the convention itself? Um, There's a book called The Philosophy of the American Constitution. It's out of print. Um, It it, it was written by an American scholar who who later migrated to Israel. Uh, And um, it, it, it takes the convention... Uh, and it looks at it from the perspective of um, a regime, which is to say the construction of a regime. And what it shows you is that there was a lot less negotiation at the convention than there was deliberation. We come back to that distinction and how they got there and who was there in that room. If you've never been to Philadelphia... Uh, brave the city and go over to uh, Constitution Hall. It's an amazing place to consider what they did there that summer, especially after a disaster for the country, the failure to repeal Obamacare. Paul Ray has given us a little hope on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. Welcome back, American Sue Hewitt. Joined by Dr. Paul Ray, classicist, historian, Hillsdale College professor, one of the, the great men of letters up there at the Lantern of the North Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, available at hillsdale.edu, uh, including in Primus, which you can receive for free. Dr. Ray, as we have this conversation, um, I'm sending out tweets, the idea of the Constitutional Convention proposed in 1780-1781 by Alexander Hamilton. It took seven years to get to Philly, two more to ratification. And a young reporter from Politico writes, this is a very Scaramucci-esque historical comparison, Hugh Hewitt. Now, Dr. Ray, I don't know if you know Anthony Scaramucci. He's in the news today for a very vulgar, obscene, profane attack on Wrights Priebus and Steve Bannon. And he's not known for patience. But I actually think the idea of political patience is exactly what people should take from what you're going to teach next year, the Constitutional Convention. Yes, yes. Um, You know, I drew a distinction between negotiation and deliberation, and I think it might be helpful. Um, We negotiate when we're interested in number one. Uh, I want something, you want something, we work out a deal where I get a little of my something and you get a little of your something. We deliberate when there's a common good. 
Um, so, for example, um, uh, my wife and I might negotiate about who takes out the garbage and who cuts the lawn and who does the cooking, but we deliberate about the well-being of our children, uh, whom we both love. Um, oftentimes, people speak about the Constitutional Convention and emphasize uh, negotiation, the so-called Connecticut Compromise, the, the, the compromise over the question of slavery and so forth. Most of what goes on there, however, is deliberation. Uh, there are 55 people present representing uh, 12 states, every, every state except uh, Rhode Island. 42 had served as delegates to the Continental Congress. Others had served uh, in the Continental Army. Uh, these are people committed to the survival of the nation, and they're worried that it won't survive. Uh, so they've got a common interest. Uh, and the, the, what goes on is the question of how can we structure a government that will provide a modicum of wisdom uh, and uh, be compatible with the requirement for consent? How can we make this thing work? Uh, and so when they're arguing back and forth, uh, they're trying to figure the thing out. Uh, you know, if you're married and you have children, you'll end up in a discussion where you'll disagree with one another once in a while. Uh, and sometimes what happens is you then decide to sleep on it. And the next morning you wake up and you reverse positions. Uh, you'd argued X and your wife had argued Y. Now you're arguing Y because you think she was right the previous night. She's been persuaded by you. Now, that happens when you listen to one another. Uh, in negotiations, you don't so much listen to one another as probe for weakness. Uh, in deliberation, you actually listen to one another. So if you go through uh, Madison's notes and the other notes that were taken during the federal convention, the striking feature is people changing their minds. Um, I tell my students the only proof that you have a mind is that you change it once in a while. Uh, when you're confronted with an argument better than your own argument. Um, so they're working their way through this. They're all committed to taking uh, the, the uh, confederal government uh, under the Articles of Confederation and creating a national government that will be adequate to the needs of the Union without um, the doing away with uh, local prerogative. Uh, in most regards. Um, and uh, they're, they're guided uh, mainly by reading Montesquieu's Spirit of Laws, which poses a real problem for them. Can you establish and sustain a republic on an extended territory? Uh, and Montesquieu's original uh, conclusion is, no, when you have a large territory, it will result in the concentration of power in a few hands. Uh, there will be emergencies that required uh, rapid movement, but the main thing is you've got a government out of sight and out of mind because it's far away. Yeah, it, uh, it, 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 I'll come back from that. I, I don't want you to abandon, hold on to the Montesquieu spirit of the law because it's a, it is an experiment that was underway. It took forever, and on a grim morning for Republicans, I just want them to remember it takes forever sometimes. It takes a decade sometimes. You don't just walk off. Stay with me. Dr. Paul Ray, the Hillsdale Dialogue continues after this. Welcome back, American Chew Hewitt. Thanks so much. 
for listening to the Hugh Hewitt Show. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, www.hugh4hillsdale.com. Collects all of the conversations I've had with Dr. Larry Aaron, the president of Hillsdale College, and every one of his colleagues that have been coming on for now in its fifth year and the last radio hour of the week to take a 30,000 view of the West, of history, of all that's coming together. And we are now spending the next year on the Constitution itself, and we have been spending time on the uh, the revolutionary moment with Dr. Aaron and Matt Spaulding. Dr. Paul Ray joins me now. He's going to be teaching. I imagine we'll have him a lot over the course of the next year, a seminar this year on the Constitutional Convention, which convenes in 1787. So, Dr. Ray, if we could, to set this up, and I know we have the backdrop of breaking news, we have the backdrop of the failure of repeal and replace, the, the, the chaos in the Republican Party, but I want people to understand that from 1780, from the conclusion of the Revolutionary War up until the ratification of the Constitutional Convention, all was not right with the country. It took a long time to get this organized and the convention particularly to get going and get completed. Can you give the historical background? Well, the, the, the fighting is over in 1781 at Yorktown. Uh, it takes a couple years, about a year and a half, to get the negotiations and the Peace of Paris in 1783. Uh, and, you know, everyone relaxes. Uh, and when you relax, uh, you don't attend to problems. Uh, and there's just a whole series of them. Um, the most important of them, because it, it contributes to just about everything else, uh, is finance. Uh, the, a, a great deal of money had been borrowed in 10,000 different ways to support the American effort in the Revolutionary War. Uh, and there is no clear-cut mechanism for paying it back. Uh, now, the problem with this is if you do not pay your debts, the next time there's a crisis and you need to borrow money, no one's going to loan to you. Uh, and most of this money is owned by, uh, owed by the various governments in the United States to Americans. But a fair amount of it is, o- is owed to the French uh, and to the Spanish uh, and to the Dutch. Um, there's a second thing. We made, made certain agreements at the Peace of Paris, and uh, the states aren't keeping those agreements, and the consequence is the British aren't keeping the agreement on their side. They've, they've got troops uh, uh, on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains, and they've kept them there, though they're required to pull them out. Uh, and they kept them there because the Americans aren't keeping their part of the agreement. So what you've got is a period of drift from 1783 to 1787 in which um, it looks as if things are coming apart. Uh, There's some reason for hope, uh, and they have to do with the fact that uh, one by one states are um, um, uh, turning over their claims to the uh, western lands uh, to the west of the Appalachian Mountains uh, to the federal government. But if the federal government doesn't survive, um, those claims will be renewed, and those claims conflict with one another. So you could end up with a war between New York and Pennsylvania and and Virginia, for example, and, uh, say, North Carolina, um, over those western lands. Uh, so you there, there is a, a, those people who are following things, which is a minority. Most people are living locally and thinking locally. Um, 
but but there there is a class of people who've served in the Continental Congress, who've served in the Continental Line, or for some other reason, think in a larger way, uh, and they're increasingly afraid. Uh, and then things begin to fall apart in the states. Shays Rebellion is the most obvious example. In Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah, and and that has to do with attempts at the state level to pay back uh, or to provide for the paying back uh, of the state debts. And so it has to do with taxes. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an uprising against, against taxes. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, they try to send a militia in Massachusetts to put down Shays' rebellion, and the militiamen join the rebellion. So you end up with um, a kind of national army taking care of it. And it's this that jolts the Continental Congress into accepting the proposal that is put forward by James Madison and Alexander Hamilton um, uh, out of the Annapolis Convention, that there be a general convention called to propose a a revision of the Articles of Confederation. Um, uh, And uh, 12 of the states comply and appoint people to go to that convention uh, and, um, you know, it opens up in the summer of 1787, a hot, sweltering summer in uh, Philadelphia, which can be a hot, sweltering place. Um, uh, and they meet under the presidency of George Washington. And everybody who is anybody is there except for three men. John Jay is missing. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson is in France. And John Adams is in England. Those are the three major figures uh, who are not present at this convention. Hamilton's there. Madison's there. John Dickinson is there. Rufus King is there. And you can simply go down the list of of notables. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson writes from Paris that it's an assembly of demigods. And they get together, and for the most part, they put aside their parochial concerns, and they ask the question, how can we make this work? Uh, And they're in agreement on two things to start with, though the details have to be worked out. Uh, The two things they're in agreement on is you really do need a national government, and therefore, if you're going to have a proper government, which the Articles of Confederation was not, you're going to have to have a separation of powers. Yeah. The second thing that they agree on is there has to be federalism, which is to say most prerogatives have to be left to the states. Um, So, you know, what what goes to the federal government are things like national defense, uh, um, uh, negotiations of treaties. Yep, yep. Uh, Immigration. uh, Yes, um, so there's a whole set of things that they know have to be in national hands, and the question is, how do you get a government that is trustworthy? Uh, and so uh, the initial battle, they, they, they're unanimous uh, that it's going to be bicameral. They have a vote on it. Everybody votes for it. Uh, then the question is, what about the lower house? Uh, and there is an extensive debate upon that that is ultimately resolved with direct election. Um, uh, and once that has been decided, direct election and uh, that it'll be based on population, 
Uh, once that's decided, then the question comes, what do you do with the Senate? Um, do you have the Senate elected by the House? That was one proposal. Uh, do you have it elected by the state legislatures the way the Continental Congress uh, was elected by the state legislatures? And do you have uh, representation by population or representation um, by states so that every state would be equal? Uh, the man who comes to the convention, opposed to James Madison on this question, absolutely insistent that there be equal representation for the states is John Dickinson. That's his main concern. Uh, and he wins. Uh, we talk about the Connecticut Compromise, and it looks like it's a compromise between the Virginia plan and uh, something proposed uh, uh, by people from New Jersey and Connecticut. But the proposal from New Jersey and Connecticut was never serious. The, the real question is equal representation of the states, and John Dickinson wins, and James Madison almost walks out of the convention. Over the oh, oh, interesting. So like John McCain last night faced a choice. Was it going to get what he wants? Has to decide yep. whether to leave or to stay and work. That's right. Uh, and there are three people who become anti-federalists because of this. Elbridge Jerry, uh, he, he of the gerrymander um, from um, uh, Massachusetts, George Mason from Virginia, and for a time, Edmund Randolph of Virginia, the governor who had presented the original Virginia plan. So this this was this was an issue that that in the end comes down to a vote and some people lose and uh, and and some people win on the thing. But they um, don't. Le- I just think it's so timely. Uh, Madison almost walks out Paul Ray, but he doesn't. He keeps right. working because it's the end product. Last night they walked out. They wouldn't go to conference. It's so doggone frustrating to me. Yes. Yes. Well, look, they had six years in the wilderness to figure out a plan. And they didn't. Um, in other words, the Republicans uh, opposed uh, Obamacare. They promised to repeal it and replace it. But they didn't work out a plan in the interim. They did not use those six years well. Uh, no, that's, that's because they never expected to win. I mean, that is the uh, element of surprise. The, 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 the Patriots expected to win the revolution, <laughs> though it was dark. So they had a plan. And then they expected to be left alone and, I guess, to be able to prosper on their own, loosely confederated, and it didn't work. It took a lot of pain. And maybe that's what we're going to have to have is a lot more pain under Obamacare. Uh, well, there's going to be that pain. There's no question it's going to collapse. And the Democrats will have a proposal, which is single payer. Yeah. You know, move uh, to socialized medicine in the full-blown sense of the word. And it will be a disaster. A quick question, Paul Ray. Uh, there is this dust-up in the White House, within the Article Two administration, and it's profane and it's vulgar. Were the men of 1787 to 89, and they were all men, were they profane and vulgar? No. No, but they did fight. I mean, uh, uh, within the Washington administration, uh, there was a battle, ultimately a battle between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Um, and there was skullduggery, which is to say uh, Jefferson founded a political party, uh, which nobody believed in at the time, uh, in order to counter Hamilton. Uh, and when George Washington asked him about it, uh, Jefferson wrote a letter to George Washington in which he lied there's just no way around it. Yeah. So there, there were bitter um, uh, 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 developments led to bitterness, 
not not so much to profanity. But then, you know, in the in the battles that took place, especially in the election of 1800, where it's Jefferson versus his good friend, John Adams, uh, what's going on in the press? Uh, uh, you know, not not Jefferson himself acting, but other others acting on his behalf uh, and at his behest. Uh, it's pretty ugly. Uh, profane, I wouldn't call it. But, but, uh, but ugly, ugly. Good yeah. to remember. Paul Ray, Dr. Paul Ray, always a pleasure. Find him at paulray.com, R-A-H-E, and find everything Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Every one of our conversations, Hugh, for hillsdale.com, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about how that convention proceeded as we move to what it eventually produced, the Constitution, in the next several months of the Hillsdale Dialogues. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Stay tuned. I'll be right back, America, uh, with Tarzana Joe. Thank you, Hewitt Show.